3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're on Thursday breakfast on 3CR. It has just gone 7.01 in the morning. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, hopefully, Malika. Good morning. Sorry, we don't have Malika yet, but that's all right. We'll we'll have her in a second. I think that's all my fault. This oh, this is just the one of the perils of, uh, I guess, broadcasting from multiple different studios. So you're gonna have to bear with us. Sometimes we will have some interesting technical difficulties that we don't usually have. Malika, do we have you? Malika, are you there? No. Okay, that's all right. Okay, well, I mean, look, it's been a week. I'm sure you can forgive us. There was an earthquake yesterday. Can you? Do you guys remember that? I feel like with everything just happening so fast, um, you know, it's like the earthquake happened in the morning and then by the time of the afternoon, everyone was so focused on the on what was happening at the Shrine of Remembrance that it sort of went over everyone's head. But um, I think hopefully we'll be able to ground you with some useful news stories today. There's a lot to cover and we're very lucky in particular to have um, – a member from Melbourne Activist Legal Support as well to join us uh, in the final part of our show to cover some of the real concerns around policing. Um, but shall we jump into a rundown of what we've got on for today? Yeah, let's go through it. All right. So first up, we're going to hear Associate Professor Bradley Mogridge, Camilleroy Water Scientist, closing the gap between Western science and traditional science. And um, he'll be speaking about how Indigenous knowledge is still sidelined in water management and why this needs to change. And this uh, segment is from the Earth Matters program on 3CR. And then after that, we're going to be joined by Dr. Chris Limo, who's an infectious disease and general physician at Monash Health, based in southeast Melbourne. He works in a public hospital and at the Refugee Health Service in Dandenong, and he's also the current president of the Victorian African Health Action Network. And Chris joins us to discuss the impact of Victoria's roadmap to COVID normal on healthcare workers, the healthcare system, and on marginalized communities. And then Melbourne-based electronic pop R&B duo, the Marindas, um, are going to be joining us. And they're the collective force of Belladong, Wajak and Noongar woman, Crystal Kicket, and Candice LeRae, uh, Jarwin and Thursday Island Heritage. And they'll be coming in to join us, uh, well, on the phone, to talk about their new single, Boomerang, and also um, their EP that will be coming out in September. Very exciting. I really like this um, this trend, well, the two-week trend of us bringing on artists to talk about um, music that they're releasing. Um, and finally, as I mentioned before, we're going to be joined by Alec Miguel from Melbourne Activist Legal Support, or MALS, and he's going to speak with us about concerns about the policing of anti-lockdown protests, which have escalated over the past week in Melbourne. And MALS is a group of volunteers that supports activists to defend their own civil and political rights. Hey, Malika, are you there? I don't think so. Yes, I am. Oh, hey. woohoo! Hello. Hello. Welcome. Good morning. Um, we went through the rundown, but uh, glad to have you here. Um, it's going to be a big show. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear from Mel's because I feel like um, everything that's been going on 
uh, with the CFMEU, those protests, the cops. It's it's pretty confusing and complex story, um, and I'm really yeah terrifying in terms of what what the police have um, in terms of weaponry um, and seeing that rolled out now. So, yeah, I think it will be really important to hear from Mel's about what that means for um, future action. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, just to emphasize this, we hammer the point every week, please stay safe, get tested, get vaccinated. Um, if you can, you know, keep an eye out for those hotspots, COVID-19 hotspots that are coming up all the time. And um, I think we might just play that community service announcement about getting vaccinated as a little bit of a reminder about why we should be doing this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Breakfast. It's uh, just gone 7.06 and I think it might be time for some headlines. So we'll go to you, Malika. Thank you, team. Um, yeah, so the headlines as of today. Um, first in the headlines, um, are policing the pandemic wrap-up. Police operations to enforce lockdown restrictions and deter protesters continue around Greater Melbourne. Right police have used rubber bullets and pepper spray to disperse crowds protesting in the CBD, including outside Melbourne's CFMEU headquarters and on the Westgate Bridge this week, with protests suspected of being infiltrated by neo-Nazis and some members of the Melbourne Freedom Rally Group. Victoria Police requested Melbourne's CBD airspace be declared a no-fly zone on Wednesday, preventing news television helicopters from capturing footage of the protests. Nine News reports that from Thursday, no aircraft is allowed within a three nautical mile radius or below 2,500 feet of Melbourne CBD without permission from police. The restriction is in place till September 26th and has sparked critique from the Alliance for Journalist Freedom about unnecessary overreach of police powers and the implications for press freedom. Police operations continue to block community support services, such as the Community Union Defence League State Library Street Kitchen, which was shut down again last week when police cited the need for a permit, a condition previously was not enforced. In other news, the new three-way strategy Strategic Defence Alliance between Australia, the UK and the US, linked to last week's shock announcement that Australia will require, acquire nuclear submarines from the US, is being condemned by various groups, with a Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson declaring the move, obsolete Cold War, zero-sum mentality and narrow-minded geopolitical concepts. The community Communist Party of Australia released a statement saying that the deal will put Australia in the hands of the US and the UK and spark a new arms race in the region. In international news, COVAX, the global incentive aimed at ensuring equitable access to vaccines regardless of wealth, last week announced it is half a billion doses short of its global supply target, while some rich 
nations continue to hoard vaccines. Lack of access for low-income countries is hindering vaccinations of very vulnerable populations, including those displaced by conflict and living in conditions that exacerbate the spread of COVID. People in Yemen are battling their third wave of COVID-19 with devastating effects, according to a report released this week by Oxfam. Yemen already has one of the highest COVID fatality rates in the world and now recorded cases have tripled and the death rate has risen more than fivefold. 99% of um, Yemenis are unvaccinated, including 4 million people displaced by the ongoing conflict. And that's it for headlines so far. Thanks, Malika. Um, yeah, so we just wanted to add to those um, headlines that <clears throat> after five years of fighting, uh, the family of Wayne Feller Morrison have um, achieved or have passed, the, a bill has been passed, Feller's bill to ban spithoods in the South Australian Legis- Legislative Council um, with support from the government and all parties. So that means that Feller's bill um, to ban spithoods will soon be law and that South Australia will have a future without spithoods. Yeah, and this was a, a bill put up by Connie Benaras in the South Australian Parliament. And, you know, this is just due to the immense amount of work that um, Wayne Fellow Morrison's family and particularly their sibling Latoya Roja Rule and their mum have been doing to, you know, raise awareness, to fight for Fella, to, you know, continually keep pushing and also to advocate for the families of other uh, people who've lost uh, loved ones in custody. So just, you know, massive solidarity with them. And, you know, it, it's a bittersweet congratulations on getting this bill passed. But um, this is such an immense achievement. Absolutely. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 712, 713 in the morning, something around there. You know what? You'll, you'll get by just fine as long as you've got an approximate uh, measure of the time. And we are going to go into a interview that, um, that the Earth Matters crew did with Associate Professor Bradley Moggridge, who's a Camilleroy water scientist, closing the gap between Western science and traditional science. And he spoke about how Indigenous knowledge is still sidelined in water management and why this needs to change. I moved into my groundwater studies and 
I had these three water holes in my head and I was thinking, what are they? And I thought, look, I'm going to paint it. So I painted it and I was out up on country um, at a place called Mungandai, which is sort of the, the start of the, the Darling River, or the Barwon, Barwon Darling River and the end of the McIntyre. And it's still on my country and I was talking to one of the old men there who was, he was a cousin and, and I was telling him about these three water holes that I'd painted and he said, boy, I'm going to take you there. So I'd never been to these places. And like the hairs on the back of your neck, you know, that was happening to me. And the, the back of my neck was, was warm and fuzzy. So, you know, the, um, knowing these places were talking to me or singing to me, you know, and I suppose that, that was really cool. And then I, I probably got 15 minutes of fame out of my groundwater thesis. So it was Aboriginal people in groundwater. So I'd just come off doing hydrogeophysics, hydrogeochemistry, and my supervisors, I was going to do urban salinity because that was starting to rear its head in Western Sydney where I was then living. And um, he said, oh, you're, you know, you're Aboriginal. I said, yeah, yeah. He was in my sister's pizza shop at Jeringong and I had a painting in her, in her pizza shop that she wanted just for the wall. And um, he sort of said, why don't you do Aboriginal people on water? And I said, I didn't know I could. And he goes, if you mention the word groundwater, I'll mark it. And I thought, you know, that sort of... That gave me the, the, a real buzz, you know, and then I got to start looking at how Aboriginal people engaged in water and um, their knowledge, you know, we are the driest and have a cotton on earth and you move away from, like, the, the coastal zones or the southeast, the riverine country, and it's going to be groundwater. If you don't know where water is and you don't know how to refine that water, you're not going to last long. So those stories are really connected with and some of those stories... Um, were really, uh, I suppose, inspiring. I, I remember I was in, um, I was on a national committee, water committee, giving advice to the National Water Commission, and um, we're in Catherine River, uh, in Northern Territory, and we're with an old man there, Bill Harney. He's a brilliant man, and he was talking about we had actually had the Northern Territory government with us as well, and he was talking about this story. Um, you know, that there's all these different water holes on his country. You know, there's yellow water, there's black water, there's white water. And he said they're all, you know, he said they're all related to, to the soils and the geology. So that everything, he said, the fish, and they all have different medicinal purposes. But he said they're all connected. And um, the then Northern Territory had a man called the, the water controller. I keep thinking of the fat controller. But um, the water controller, so he controlled the water in the Northern Territory for the government. And um, he's standing there nodding, nodding away and... Um, it was, he got to the say that, you know, they're all connected. So the Northern Territory government said, you're dreaming, old man, even though they're old dreaming stories. Um, so the Northern Territory government spent hundreds of thousands of dollars drilling. Guess what? They're all connected. So those dreaming stories that they had, he had of all these places, told him that they're all connected, even though, you know, they're all different sort of soils and geology and things like that, but underneath... You know, they'll have stories about, the, you know, let's say the rainbow serpent, but they're all connected. And that's the same in, um, in Sydney. Um, while I was researching my thesis, um, Gurringatch and Mirrigan is a story that survived, you know, colonisation, which is very close to the Sydney basin, so the Coxes River and Wallandilly River. It's a story, you know, it, was, it created the Janolan Caves. You know, those sort of stories are, are pretty rare to survive. And that old man that told it was in the bottom of Burrow Valley where 
the Warragamba Dam is today. You know, Barragrang Valley is, is now flooded, but he was on the mission and he told that story back in the, I think it was the mid-1800s. But even thinking about my country as well, we have a, a, a story, and I think that was one of my exciting bits of connecting with water as well. So we have a place called Boobra Lagoon. Um, it's an old, you know, in geomorphology terms, it's an old river path, um, but it's of, of the McIntyre. But what it is, is a place where uh, a large snake type creature with a crocodile head, so it's not a, not a nice beast, but it used to uh, call the gutter, and it used to terrorise the mob up there, and, um, you know, by taking people and taking animals. So one of the warriors said, look, I've had enough of this. So he got his, got his spears and um, off he went, threw a few spears at the gutter, and obviously the gutter wasn't too happier, happy, and he chased him all the way through our country, and hence, that's the creation of Boober Lagoon. So it's about 5.7 k's long, um, but it, it looks exactly like a snake has just carved its way through the landscape. And um, the warrior got to the to this bumble tree, which is one of our um, fruit trees, and uh, which is the, the gutter's mother-in-law. Um, and the gutter would not come any closer. But they, um, you know, that sort of story is there, and that and that gutter still lives in that lagoon today. And, you know, there are still stories that, you know, kids have disappeared, sheep just disappeared, cows just disappeared, and I suppose our mob fought really hard because originally that was a water skiing park. It was perfect for water skiing. And so we couldn't use state legislation. It took an act of federal parliament to actually get the water skiers off our lagoon, and they got their own lagoon in in town in Gundawindi. But we got our lake back, and I suppose there's a lot of our old people there. There's a lot of um, scarred and carved trees, and I think that's that's you know we say it's probably the well it's our most significant site. You know, it's part of initiation for men as well. Um, but there you know there are women's places as well around the lagoon. But it's it's one of those places that's super super important. I was chairing a session at the Australasian Groundwater Conference. Um, just, just late last year and um, I had an Indigenous session and we had some, some women rangers come and we had uh, a drilling team that was working with them talking about um, their country and they were from the Great Sandy Desert and they were talking about this place and they were about to drill looking for water and this old man said, oh, if you drill over there you'll, you'll find an old river, ancient river. And so when they drilled there, they found a paleo channel, so which is a, an ancient river that's probably 10,000 years old. And, you know, this old man just said casually, yeah, that's an old river. So he knew that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's that sort of knowledge, you know, where we're part of a, an old knowledge system that is, I believe, is science uh, because it is generations and generations of observation, of knowing your country, knowing every bit of every plant, every animal and what their role is. And I suppose you're, you're testing that environment to make sure that you obviously respect that environment but also you survive. And I think that's, that's the exciting bit about traditional knowledge is that it can actually add to science and I think that's what I'm trying to do for water is that we don't, we don't value water the way we should. At the moment, when you think about the Murray-Darling Basin, water is a commodity. So we've separated land and water, and if Aboriginal people want water, they've got to go to the market and buy it. So if they, they want to go buy water in the Namoy at the moment, in northern New South Wales, $1,000 a megalitre. 
that's in dry times, but in wet times, it's about $80 a megalitre. So you can sort of see if you've got water, you've got some serious power. That's so why it's, it's so political. And I suppose the other thing was when I look at the way we manage water, I didn't see Aboriginal voices in water. Just weren't there. You know, as I said, we're an oldest living culture on the driest inhabited continent, but we don't have a say in water. And also I got tired of hearing other people tell our water stories. I wanted to be, you know, take these microphones, for instance, and, and tell our stories our way. And I think that's the bit that I'm trying to inspire, you know, my kids, but, you know, a, a generation to try and take that opportunity and, and take hold of those microphones and tell our stories. Oh, I'll give you some light reading. So talking about climate change, actually, there's an um, Australian geographer had a special edition, um, 2016, I think it was. So there was a, a paper by Nunn and Reid, it's a local story here, and they're looking at trying to validate Aboriginal knowledge. And so they're looking at flooding and sea level rise, and they, they dated that around 7,000 years, and it talked about those people in Port Phillip Bay had to move up country to higher ground because the sea level started to rise. And that sort of stories, you know, that's validating knowledge, you know, and I suppose it becomes a... It's not mumbo-jumbo and it's not myth and legend. And I think recently I just saw something that the Gunditjmara, you know, they've got stories talking about Budgebim um, erupting. That's 37,000 years ago. Those sort of things is, is bringing those, those stories to life but also trying to change the culture of science. You know, I've, I've infiltrated the system. I'm, I'm working with the Academy of Science and the, the Academy of Technology, Science and Engineering, trying to get them to think differently. You know, they, uh, they have no Indigenous fellows, they're all male, pale and stale. Um, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Sorry to us men. But um, that's it. You know, that, that's it. Um, you, the, the academy is full of men, you know, and I think that's the way they think. They've got, they've got a, women, a woman CEO and they're starting to, to have a cultural shift and that, that's really exciting. So being part of that and seeing the opportunity that one day, you know, maybe an elder will be recognised for their, their knowledge of country. Oh, that's nice. Their knowledge of country about um, being a science, you know, recognised for what they have. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got Gunditjmara with, the, with their um, eel traps being recognised by United Nations. So cultural landscapes are starting to, to show up in, in the way we look at the landscape. And I think... What also I want to do is make sure that Indigenous knowledge is in the centre. It's not, not an elective like I had to do. My son's doing an elective now. Um, indigenous values and knowledge is normal. We just bring it back, it's just taught. That's it, it's the way it is. But also the way we think about water and, um, and science, you know, the way Indigenous methodologies can influence the way we teach as well. And I think there's, there's a lot of, lot of scope there to, to make a difference and bring the curricula up to speed, you know, and, and turn, get excited about these old stories in the Australian context because we don't really value Aboriginal knowledge in Australia. I don't know why, but I think we should.
again, that was a recording of Associate Professor Bradley Moggridge, who's a Camilleroy water scientist, closing the gap between Western scientists, uh, sorry, Western science and traditional science. And uh, he was speaking there about how indigenous knowledge is still sidelined in water management and why this needs to change. And once again, thanks to Earth Matters for that recording. And if you want to find out more about what Associate Professor Bradley Moggridge is up to, you can follow him on Twitter at at Brad Moggo, that's B-R-A-D-M-O-G-G-O. And um, we thought we might, uh, you know, because we are a current affairs show and we didn't mention this in the headlines, we thought we might spend a little bit more time discussing the earthquake. So we've uh, we've had a little bit of a squirrel and um, found some earthquake facts for you. Do you guys want to jump into the earthquake chat? Well, I mean, just to segue from that last um, recording that we were listening to there of Bradley Mugridge, like it was very relevant in terms of um, talking about the history that has been preserved in Indigenous knowledge and science um, around really, you know, uh, natural disasters like the eruption of um, fr- eruption of volcanoes from 37,000 years ago. So I felt like that really links into this experience of the earthquake in some ways as well. Yeah. So as you uh, as you all no doubt will have noticed, unless you were in a vehicle, which is very interesting that you uh, don't actually feel it that much if you are in a vehicle. Um, Basically, there was an earthquake yesterday morning uh, at uh, with an epicenter at Mansfield about 9.15 a.m. And it was, I think, the so this is something that I wanted to actually touch on, is the magnitude is being reported differently across different news sites and especially according to the time that it was posted. So um, we're seeing reporting of between 5.6 to 6, but it's really important to remember that the Richter scale is logarithmic, so there's a big difference between a 5.6 and a 6. Yeah, I mean, tell us what that really means, Priya, because it's like, isn't it an exponential curve of some sort? Yeah, exactly. So when you're looking at the order of magnitude between a 5.6 and a 6, the level of damage and impact that you would be seeing at 6 is much higher than, yeah, much higher than what we saw. And actually, something that I found, um, I guess, a relief um, and also a little amusing is that Mansfield appears to have escaped uh, unscathed. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they kind of felt a similar rumbling to what we did down here, but um, yeah, without any kind of damage or um, serious disaster. So I guess it, even though there there is a town there, obviously, um, it was kind of lucky that it's not, you know, wasn't in a huge city, the epicenter of the earthquake. I was also just looking up um, because it was there was reporting on, you know, where um, the depth of the earthquake and it being 10 kilometers underground. And I was just kind of wondering what the significance of where where an earthquake is um, relative to the Earth's surface. And I was fi- found out that um, they can occur up to 500 kilometers deep. Um, and the closer they are to the surface, the stronger they are felt on the surface, which which uh, intuitively does make sense. But, yeah, kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, and um, the fault line that this occurred on, so that's the fracture in the Earth's crust that causes this earthquake, or, you know, that's the, the center of the earthquake, um, was about 50 kilometers southeast of Mansfield. And so um, this is something interesting that I found out. I didn't realize that there were, you know, several, I mean, obviously with, you know, places like the Otways and uh, the Victorian Alps and stuff, there are mountain ranges there, which means that, you know, there have been, there, there are fault lines that are um, being pushed up to create those ranges but I didn't realize that there were some smaller fault lines that are also just sort of peppered around Victoria. So that's very interesting to kind of look into. I mean, 
you know, it's not it's not really the case that we're going to expect a ton more earthquakes, um, you know, in the in the near future. But learning about this, I think, is quite important. And, you know, I guess you never you never think to look into it until this sort of thing happens. Yeah, Malika, well, you were saying that you were um, you remember an earthquake from 2012 or 2013. Yeah. And I feel like that was the only reason why I kind of knew what was going on. But, um, yeah, whilst it might not be a common occurrence, like in the last 10 years we've had two. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like from the reading that I've been doing, it is, it's not, it's relatively common. They're just usually quite small and so, um, go by, I guess, pretty much unnoticed. But yeah, I feel like in my lifetime there have been a few others, but this one felt like the biggest, which, According to at least some reporting, it has it was the large, the kind of strongest earthquake um, in the area uh, for 200 years at least. Wow. Yeah, um, and this is this has been the largest earthquake. This is from the Daily um, Australia. Uh, this has been the largest earthquake in Australia since 2016, uh, when a 6.1 earthquake hit the Peterman Ranges region near Uluru, but there was no damage uh, due to the remoteness remoteness of the location. Um, so. Yeah, it is. Um, it like you said, they're they're happening, you know, mm. fa- fairly often or more often than we realize. But um, either they are in remote areas or you know not at a at a level that we register. But it is you know very very fascinating, and I encourage people to head to earthquakes.ga.gov.au and you can look up. Um, that most recent earthquake, there's plenty of really interesting information about the earthquake itself. There's a shake map. There's also a quiz um, where you can, I guess, uh, quiz. What am I talking about? A survey, please. There's a survey where you can fill out whether or not you... quiz. <laughs> it's a quiz. <laughs> and you get graded on whether or not you felt the earthquake. Now, you can fill out a survey uh, to, yeah, let let the uh, government know, Geoscience Australia know, whether you felt the earthquake, the intensity at which you felt it. And it's, yeah, very interesting stuff. A citizen science situation. Yeah. Um, um, oh, and also, you know, for earthquakes, uh, you know, if, if there is a, an earthquake in the future, please remember, uh, try and get under a table and hold on to something. Uh, don't, you know, run around screaming like you, you are at risk of, you know, structural uh, issues like your roof caving in if something serious hits. So um, try and uh, duck and cover. Yeah, I feel like the two things that happened yesterday after the earthquake was one, the feeling of walking around the streets and hearing everyone talking about the same thing that you're talking about, which yeah. is kind of a thrill. And the other was, um, yeah, people not knowing what to do in an earthquake and also people talking about what they thought the earthquake quake was before they realized it was an earthquake was it the washing machine was it your dog was it a truck (laughs) i thought my gas heater was blowing up which was you know also scary legitimately terrifying that is very terrifying and i i would also like to acknowledge that for a lot of people like the earthquake and just the discussions and the reporting of it can bring up um some difficult emotions or experiences or memories for various people so just a reminder that there is um support through like national helplines like lifeline which are open 24/7 and you can call them on 131114 that's 131114 and no shame in reaching out for help lots of different things bring up different emotions and memories for us so just look after yourselves during these 
very strange times. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Malika. I think it is really important to acknowledge that um, is both that experience was scary and yet potentially, um, you know, there's lots of places in the world where earthquakes aren't a funny novelty and they're actually very disastrous yeah. and terrifying. So Yeah, and I mean, it did cause some structural damage here. We saw some footage come out of South Yarra where I think yeah. Betty's Burgers got, uh, the, or the facade of part of a building um came down so it is yeah it is a it is a worry and also you know during these times we're we're cooped up in our houses we're all feeling pretty stressed and the weirdest things lead us to breaking point so please don't be ashamed to reach out to lifeline again that is one three one 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 four um and now i think we might go to a track so uh we played a bit of this album I think last week, and this is Closer by Nairi from her new album, Three. In the summer
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 7.36 in the morning. The track that you just heard was off Nairi's new album, and that was, oh my goodness, I've lost it. Um, that was Closer. And um, we're going to go into another track now, and this is the new, um, yeah, this is new from Teether, Kuya Neil, and featuring Sevi. This is Addy. Yeah. 
And that was Addie by Sevi, Creonil, and Teether. Um, that was, yeah, just a retroactive uh, content warning for language there. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, everybody. Um, good song, though. So, you know, it's worth it. People are putting out amazing tracks during lockdown. Um, all right. So next up um, this morning, we have uh, Chris Limo joining us, who's an infectious diseases and general physician at Monash Health, um, based in the southeast, southeast of Melbourne. And he works in a public hospital and at the Refugee Health Service in Dandenong. He's also the current president of the Victorian African Health Action Network. And Chris is joining us this morning uh, to discuss the impact of Victoria's road map to COVID normal on healthcare workers, on the healthcare system, and also on marginalised communities. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Thursday Breakfast, Chris. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Um, so there's kind of a, a lot to uh, disentangle in these in this area. I, When I was writing questions, I was like, okay, how do we move through it? But I just wanted to ask first about um, the Vic government's uh, planned roadmap, roadmap to COVID normal. Um, obviously, there's a massive appetite in, in the general community and population to get out of lockdown. We're all really sick of that. But at the same time, we're kind of hearing things from healthcare workers who are really worried um, about the healthcare system and the effect that these, this opening up will have on, on the hospital system and on, on their own um, levels of stress. So I was wondering if you could talk about the potential impacts of the plan on the healthcare system. Sure. Um, yes, it is. It is worrying, but it's one of those things. That, it looks like there's no way to avoid it, because once people start getting out and about and moving around, and you know, we start you know breathing on each other, uh, there are going to be more infections, and so there are going to be more people who get it, um, which means that a few of those people will get sick, and a few of those people will go to hospital, and the number of people who end up going to hospital is potentially quite large. But I think the whole society kind of seems to be at the end of its tether at the moment. And mm. every every um, every day that goes by, we see people who are really feeling the burden of isolation from each other and, you know, from loved ones and from doing the things that make life meaningful and, and actually things that are detrimental to healthcare. I mean, there are people coming into hospital with problems that should have been picked up months ago. Uh, so there's actually a pretty heavy cost of the lockdown as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a real bind. Um, having said that, the fact that we've gone through all of this for the last few months does mean that we've, we've been getting a lot more people getting vaccinated. So that means that of all the people that do get infected, fewer people will get sick. So it, it's been worth it, I think, to um, to buy that time to vaccinate people. But yeah, it's going to be a bit rough, I think, over the next few months. Yeah, it's so it is really a bind and complicated. Like as you say, there are very serious um, consequences of being in lockdown for, for not just um, you know it's difficult, but really for people's health, for people's psychological health, and even yeah those kind of healthcare issues that go undetected because they're not getting access to the medical care they need in the same way that they would usually. Um, uh, but at the same time, yeah, I think, yeah, vaccination, it is something to um, kind of celebrate and really emphasise that it is it is actually protecting us. It's not like we've done this all for nothing. Um, these lockdowns have, have helped us get to this point with vaccination, which is really good. 
I was wondering also if you could talk about um, just the experience of healthcare workers, um, yourself included, um, at the moment when cases do rise. It's it is really hard to understand as someone who doesn't work in healthcare what that pressure is like on nurses, on ambos, on doctors. Um, yeah, if you could speak a bit about what that situation is like for people working in hospitals and in these in these healthcare jobs. Yeah, so it's it's exhausting. Uh, it's mentally exhausting and it's physically exhausting and uncomfortable. So the main thing is because everybody that comes to hospital is potentially somebody who's got COVID and so they need to get tested and, um, and put in, uh, you know, precautions to avoid uh, transmission, in, you know, in case they've got it until they're proven not to have it. And so that means people get put in rooms and, you know, there's, we all have to wear masks and wearing face shields and gowns and gloves and, you know, taking all that on, putting all that on, taking it all off takes time. You know, you're wearing a mask all day, it's uncomfortable um, and it's also quite uh, distancing from, you know, patients and from each other as well. I mean, you know, I, I kind of get surprised when I see the lower half of someone's face these days mm. um, because it just seems so weird. But, you know, and then we're not able to socialise at work as we usually do. So, I mean, I feel really privileged to have been able to go to work all these months because I go to work in a hospital and so I do see people um, outside the household every day. But at the same time, we're not able to have those interactions with each other that we normally would. And so at the very time when we've got increased pressure, workload, the complexity has gone up, the relationships at work that sustain us through that are strained because of the distance. Um, so it, it is quite difficult and it goes on for a long, long time. And, you know, there's, even after the rest of the community is, you know, at liberty and, you know, maybe not wearing masks everywhere all the time, you know, in the hospital, we're still going to be doing that for the foreseeable future. Hi, Chris. This is Priya as well. I just wanted to respond to that point um, on the privilege it is uh, that, that we have to, to socialize and just, you know, kind of hammer home that point for those of us who are able to actually go to work. You know, it's been a it's been a massive help for our mental health to be able to come in and, and do radio. Um, but also it is really about making sure that we we take the the ultimate safety precautions that we can when we are um, doing this and being mindful of the fact that some of us do have access to spaces where we do get to speak to people, um, you know, rather than just being cooped up at home. Yeah, yeah, it's such a... I mean, radio is one of those things that's so um, sustaining and so intimate as well. Um, I think, you know, you guys doing such a fantastic job of keeping people going and keeping people connected through this time. Yeah, really important. Yeah, thank you. It's such a, it is really a privilege to be here. And um, sometimes, you know, we we forget that we're actually speaking, you know, in our little room in the studio, we forget that we're actually speaking to all these people outside as well, which is um, a real privilege and very, very lovely. I also wanted to ask about um, the Australian Medical Association and the Australian Nurse and Midwifery Federation have cautioned against lifting restrictions too quickly, while also obviously acknowledging that um, restrictions do need to be lifted and there needs to be a way out of lockdown. But I thought one interesting point that they made um, in an open letter was that uh, the hospital capacity that we have um, is, is a result of underfunding over a long time. And I'm wondering um, whether you could give some insight into the current state of the healthcare system and kind of what, what we need to learn basically from this situation about funding hospitals and the healthcare system more broadly. Yeah, look, 
that is absolutely true. We have not had enough to work with for as long as I can remember. Um, the demand for healthcare outstrips our ability to deliver it, has done through all of my working life, and it's probably got worse over the last 10 years. Um, because the population's growing and, you know, people are getting older and there's, you know, more and more people with, with issues that need to be addressed. But it's just the resources are not keeping up. We do have a, a you know, because we've got this two-tier health system and, you know, everything outside public hospitals is funded through, essentially through the Commonwealth, through Medicare and, and, and you know, things like that. Um, and then in the hospital system, it's the state government. And the state government gets money from the federal government and they always argue about how much should go. And... Every now and again, they revise the way they calculate things. It never seems to be revised up. It's always revised down. And so we are constantly under pressure to do things as quickly as possible, get people out of hospital as soon as possible. And, you know, the fact that if we've been able to do a little bit more during that time, it might stop them from coming back to hospital too soon. Um, can't, you know, it's hard to factor that in because of the pressure of just getting people off the ambulances you know, into a bed in the hospital to, to treat the acute crisis. So that's been going on for a really long time. And this uh, pandemic has made it worse um, because we've stopped doing a lot of things that we have been normally doing um, in order to prepare for, uh, you know, a large number of cases of COVID. So it's like a paradox because on the one hand, we're trying to preserve the health system by shutting it down. Um, it's really quite a bind. Mm, absolutely. Um, so the modelling and the roadmap kind of all hinge on population-wide vaccination rates. And I'm wondering if there is a risk that certain communities um, may be left behind due to the lack of access to vaccines for whatever reason, whether that's a lack of appropriate public health messaging in certain languages or... Um, yeah, just for whatever reason, if, if, there, if there's a risk that um, using these kind of 70%, 80% population-wide numbers could potentially leave some, some communities exposed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I worry about that a lot um, because we know that, that not everybody has got equal access to healthcare or to communications or to, you know, to the internet if you have to book things online. Uh, some people can't physically move to where they need to go to get vaccination because of disability or because of isolation or there's a lot of reasons so a lot of the efforts of the state government at the moment are trying to go to where people are um, that probably could have started earlier should definitely have started earlier but they are doing it um, and you know even responding to groups in the community who are saying look you know we've got a, a bunch of people here who cannot get to the nearest existing place to get vaccinated what can we do? You know, can you bring it to us? And so they're trying to do things like that. And um, hopefully that'll be enough to reach um, to reach everybody. Because of course the people that have got the most challenges in getting vaccines are also the people that've got the most challenges getting treatment for chronic health conditions. And so they're also the most the people most likely to get seriously ill if they do get COVID. Um, so yeah, we really need to make every effort to reach to reach those who need it most um, who can't use whatever resources they've got, you know, to meet, meet the services where they are at the moment. Mm, thank you. Um, and last year you worked in the Flemington and North Melbourne Towers during the lockdown and also publicly condemned the inhumane treatment of residents at that time. 
Uh, one of the only th- good things that did happen during that really harsh um, lockdown was that there was community organising to support the community there, supplying food and whatnot. And um, again, I've seen you know on Twitter people talking about community members helping their communities to get back. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of this work that's going on. You did just mention it there. Maybe also how, um, if someone is interested from a community group, how they can contact the government to get their community vaccinated. Um, and also how the government might support this work. Yeah, so it's, it's been good to see there's a, there is some learning there um, because the, the main problem with last year with the public housing is that there was no dialogue um, with the community because the community there were shouting, saying, we need, we need help, we need help, and they were heard nothing, and then all of a sudden it was like, you have to stay home and you can't don't go anywhere. Um, so I think there has been a learning. Um, the state government has got some programs with, like, Community engagement and partnerships, they call it. And so this is a, a team of people who work with existing groups in the community to uh, spread, you know, provide information, provide access to vaccination in whatever way works for that group of people. So I, I asked them, when I got the questions that you sent me, um, I did ask them um, how best people can get in contact with them. And there is an email. Um, it's just covidvaccination at health.vic.gov.au. Um, and the engagement team will take that email and they'll get in contact with the people that send it and just find out how best to you know, give access to, to vaccination to that group of people, whether that's you know, facilitating access to existing vaccination sites or setting up a pop-up site or, or whatever. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic to know because um, I'm sure especially uh, for those of us who have relatives or loved ones, uh, people that we care about in our community who are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, um, being able to, you know, uh, have, have a point of contact with the government to, to start workshopping how these um, these supports can be rolled out in our communities is really important. I know uh, in the inner north, for example, there were efforts to, uh, you know, have vaccination days at, for example, a Greek Orthodox church, which I think um, was a good way to, to actually get some of the older population um, and non-English speaking population up north to come in and, um, you know, to a place that they're comfortable in to, to actually access the vaccine. So seeing more of that will be really important. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that I guess really important is there's, some people will talk about, you know, pe- people that are hard to reach or you know, people who are vulnerable, but most most people are connected with someone. And if you look at all of those connections, everybody actually is already in contact. It's just a case of listening. Um, so there are some people who need to listen more than before um, when it comes to planning things, because community know community knows itself, and community is fast and flexible. And um, you know, everybody helps their family, their friends, um, and and are ready to do that. And everybody knows someone. The trouble comes when when people aren't listened to, um, and then what happened? Like what happened last year is that people will burn themselves out and put themselves at risk helping those who are close to them, and then they become, you know, they become in need of help as well. So there needs to be some some partnership, a real partnership. There needs to be community is fast and community should lead, but government is big and strong and has a lot of resources and can sustain things. But it's, it's not so good at crea- being creative and innovative. And so that's where the balance needs to come. That is, yeah, such an important point. Thank you so much for making it. 
Um, before we finish up, I just wanted to give you a chance to add anything, any final message that you wanted to give to community around vaccination or um, anything else before we end the interview. Um, look, I would say hold, hold tight. Um, we, we are getting there. It might be a little rough in the next few months, but do take care. Get vaccinated if you haven't been. Um, all of the vaccines which we have are safe, um, and there is a lot of thought about how to make them the safest, uh, you know, uh, you know, vaccination possible, and how best to to support people if they have any issues with it. The other thing is to stay healthy, stay well, um, get enough sleep, eat, eat, you know, good food, get regular exercise. Now's a great time to quit smoking, don't drink too much alcohol. All of those things that keep yourself mentally and physically well so that if you do get exposed to COVID before you have a vaccine, you are less likely to get seriously ill. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Rosie and Priya. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Dr Chris Lemo, an infectious diseases and general physician at Monash Health based in South East Melbourne. He works at a public hospital and at the Refugee Health Service in Dandenong and is also the current president of the Victorian African Health Network. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Health for Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero-COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. 
time to stand by us. Following the success of our free inaugural event last year, Bike Plus Collective Australia proudly presents the second Stand By Us Forum to celebrate Bike Plus Visibility Day. All events are free and all bar one happen online. Starting with the opening First Nations keynote on the morning of Thursday 23rd September, Celebrate Bisexuality Day, there will be fun events like a Bike Plus Games Meetup, artsy buy events including the biconic performances and panel discussions on themes such as queering relationships for those who are bi and polyamorous. To check out the program, including the safe space guidelines, visit our webpage standbyus.com. That's S-T-A-N-D-B-I-U-S dot com. It's time to stand by us. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, um, we're really excited to have some more music and musicians joining us on the show. So um, Melbourne-based electronic pop R&B duo The Marindas, the collective force of Belladon Wajak and Noongar woman Crystal Kicket and Candice LeRae, a Jarwin and Thursday of a... Jarwin and Thursday Island Heritage, and they're joining us to talk about their new single, Boomerang, which we will be playing shortly, and also um, the forthcoming EP that the single is lifted from, and that's out on September 27th. So uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. So good to have you both here. So um, maybe we'll just begin by getting each of you to introduce yourself a little bit more. Um, so Candace, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, hi everyone, Gandis here. Um, yeah, so I was born in Darwin and um, I'm a Darwin and Torres Strait Islander woman. Grew up in Perth, that's where I've met um, Christelle in music and I sort of had a passion for music and um, sort of been in the industry for the last 20 years and um, the Marindas, we've been, we've been doing this for like the last 10 years. So yeah, always been in music and um, yeah, so, so glad to be you know on this journey with my sister girl, Christelle. Yeah, hello everybody. Um, yeah, so my name's Christelle Kickett. I'm originally from Perth, living in Melbourne. Um, my mob's Wajak and Belladong. And um, yeah, moved over to Melbourne to pursue music a bit more further. And um, yeah, just been here ever since and missing home very much. <laughs> yeah, but um, you're both in that yeah. situation where you kind of can't go visit family and yeah. friends at the moment, hey? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but luckily, we can visit each other, which is good. <laughs> yes, I heard that you're you you live close by each other, and perhaps that's one of the reasons that you've been able to work on an EP and uh, release music at this time. For sure, and I think we had a really good open window at the beginning of the year. Melbourne was doing you know extremely good in the summer. Um, yeah, so we we it's it's been sort of a year making, and we just took our time with it. Really, no, there was no rush to like rush into. Um, creating anything in this time. Yeah, so we've got the track here, and I was wondering if before we get to listen to it, um, you could just tell us about this track, Boomerang. Yeah, so we um, we locked ourselves into a hotel room for a couple of days, and we wrote this EP, and Boomerang was like a song that we started like maybe five or six years ago, and I remember Christelle, you know, coming over to the home studio, and she's like, Kenneth, I want a song about... Um, 
you know, called Boomerang, and it's going to go like, you're not going back like a boomerang, something like that. Okay, can you make that? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I would kind of sit and tinker and make the beats, and um, Christelle would sit on the side with a pen and paper and work on lyrics and melody, and it's kind of a real collaborative type thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really nice. Like, the, the lyrics kind of just came um, pretty quickly. Um, I love my love love songs anyway, so... Um, and being in and out of love, you know, it, it's, everyone can relate to that. And it's also like, you know, throwing love out there and just, um, you know, wanting it in return. So that's um, the lyric, you know, your love comes back like a boomerang. So, yeah, it was really exciting. We, we say it like locked in a hotel as if it was like, you know, a bad thing. But it was actually a really, really good thing. And we, you know, we created the EP out of the out of the two days in the in the hotel and we would have not been able to do that at home um especially with me with my boys and you know just noise and too much stuff going on so it's really nice when you do those sort of things as artists and yeah exciting and really beautiful just like it, it also is just really joyful to hear um just that spontaneity of creative expression um this is Priya by the way um and I think maybe we'll listen to the track and come back and um have a bit more of a chat about it Sure. All right, here's Boomerang by the Marindas. Enjoy. <laughs>
Tuning in, you're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR 855 AM, and we are joined by the Marindas, and we just heard their new song, uh, Boomerang, from their new EP, which is upcoming on the 27th of September. So last week, we were talking to Moju about sad songs, but obviously the Marindas know how to write a banger. So what do you love about making music, music that's able to talk about emotions, culture, and tell stories, but it's also great to dance to? Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, we're influenced from so many different styles of music and, um, for me, it's Candice here, by the way, everybody, um, <laughs> um, I like to, you know, work with a lot of synths and electronic music and I've got like a home setup and, um, very driven to what sort of music is coming out today and always listening and sort of follow other producers and things like that and, um, you know, so I, I really just hone in on the musical aspects, but Christelle's the one who really w- would focus in on, um, you know, the story aspects behind the songs. Um, Christelle, I don't know if you want to... Yeah. Um, yeah. I just love to write lyrics anyway. Like, I've, I've been writing lyrics very little. Like, I think my first song, I think I was writing at, at about maybe 11 years old and... I remember seeing just photos of you, Candice, that you're putting up recently of you playing the keyboards and stuff. So I never got into mm-hmm. any instrument things, but I think that's what makes us so special is that we have, you know, Candice that can produce music, I can write music, and then we can kind of come together and collaborate what we what we like. And it's just been working for the last, you know, what, nine years, Candice? <laughs> like, how long have we been together for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, if it ain't broke, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we were having a great time dancing in the studio. It's our favourite thing when we get to put on a loud song because, you know, we're a current affairs show, so there's a lot of time just talking, but when we can put on music and have a good time, <laughs> I know, it's I was really nice. tapping my foot, and I was like, actually, this is yeah. a good song. Like, hey, we did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, know, I would love also... Listen to listen again, and like, actually, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we could give you that experience through your phone speaker. Um, yeah. I was also wondering about live shows. I like was watching some video clips of you, both obviously video clips from song, previous songs, but also live performances, and um, that kind of you know part of the the whole um, musical uh, thing, like being on stage, um, dancing, outfits, all that seems to be you know an important part of what you do as well. A very um, exciting and fun part. So that's probably been a bit on hold this year. What have you been doing to kind of fill the void? And also, um, what have you got planned for when things open up a little? Yeah. yeah. I think that's the best part. That's the most part that I miss is performing and socialising and getting out there and networking with everybody and just, you know, music feeling when, you, when you're when you on stage and getting off stage and you just see and meet so many other artists that are on you know, the mm. same stage as you or just in that same room with you. Um, I really miss that. But I've just been, yeah, exercising and just trying to keep positive, um, getting myself ready for when we do get to perform again. Um, and luckily, Candice and I have been catching up and going for walks as well, so it's just nice. Yeah, it's just a lot of good time to spend with family, I guess, because we've been so busy over the last couple of years, especially, um, you know, we were just we started a tour last year and, you know, spending a lot of time away from family, but also... 
you know, just being able to write new material in this time is really good. You know, like for me, I've been just, um, you know, just creating music and just sort of, um, you know, building on that a little bit. But, um, yeah, we keep things fun, you know, like everything that we yeah. do in our music is make sure that we're writing about fun stuff and we're doing fun stuff on stage and because music is, you know, um, there to make us happy, you know, mm. and, and enjoy life. So Yeah, that's my happy, yeah. happy spot. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I was wondering as well if you wanted to talk about any of um, your influences, like Candice in terms of production and Christelle in terms of uh, lyrics and songwriting um, on this album. Yeah, I, I love the production on this track. And, um, yeah, I was just wondering if there was uh, particular people that were influencing this song or others on the EP. Yeah, I think it's sort of like a, um, a diffusion of everything that I've been working like working on and just listening to over like the many years that, you know, I've started actually tinkering around with music production probably for about 17 years now. And, um, you know, I, I YouTube a lot, so I, I, I study a lot of producers and look at a lot of interviews and ways that people make beats. And I think it was just that knowledge was just there and what we made just was natural, like what came from us, like our feeling. But um, I think if I could just pinpoint a name, I guess, like um, I really sort of look up to big producers like Kelvin Harris, um, who's like, you know, constantly releasing bangers, like, <laughs> every track. Um, but also being, like, then going the opposite way where, like, every day I listen to albums like Solange's new album and um, very beautiful, like, R&B and soul and jazz mm. and, yeah. Crystal, what about it's a you? It's them. Hey, what did you Sorry, <laughs> the three of us all speaking at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Um, what about you in terms of songwriting or, like, other artists that you... Um, have influenced you or just who you're listening to at the moment as well? Oh, I'm listening to quite a lot of um, female artists. Um, I'm just kind of, yeah, when I'm cleaning the house and that, I just like pretty much put on my YouTube playlist of like female artists. But, um, well, Christelle, I'm sorry, we're like losing you a little bit, kind of cutting oh, cutting huh? out. Yeah, we've got you back, okay. I think, yeah. So, um, yeah, I've just been pretty much listening to a lot of female artists at the moment, especially when I'm cleaning my house, and I've just got, like, a playlist on, on YouTube playing. Um, but, yeah, I've, I don't know. I've always been influenced by by a lot of female groups as well, like, growing up. So um, my girl groups like TLC, even Spice Girls and Destiny's Child, um, and more of the R&B, R&B pop scene. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was always like that with with all my girl cousins, like, trying to form a little girl group when we were younger and perform in front of all the aunties and uncles and that. So it's always been been something that I've, you know, dreamed about. And finally I get my soul sister to share the stage with. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, and, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and, and talk us through this. I think um, the last question that we had is where can listeners find your track Boomerang in the EP once it's out? Uh, sorry, what was that? Where can we? Yeah, where can listeners find the track Boomerang and also the EP when it's out? Oh yeah, well, um, of course, Spotify, all of your platforms, iTunes. Um, but if you want a really deadly physical copy of the vinyl, mm-hmm. <laughs> where, uh, you can get it from our Bandcamp. So we've got like a Bandcamp page, and there you can actually get like a you can purchase a copy of our CD we released last year. We've also got some T-shirts on there. There might be some yeah. awesome 
stuff coming so up. So maybe that person that one time at band camp, I went and bought camps well i mean amazing like people we really encourage people to go go check out your band camp because you know artists aren't able to get that revenue from performing so um everybody go ahead to the marinda's band camp thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today thank you you for having us and that was Melbourne-based electronic pop and R&B duo The Marindas, who are the collective force of Balardong, Wajuk, and Nungar woman Crystal Kiket, and Candice LeRae of Jawan and Thursday Island Heritage. And their new single, Boomerang, is the second to be lifted from their forthcoming EP out September, 22nd, uh, September 27th. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we are joined by Alec from Melbourne Activist Legal Support to discuss some concerns about the policing of anti-lockdown protests, which have escalated over the past week in Melbourne. Alec, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. um, I mean, it's been a a really, you know, strange time, and... uh, Protests have been held fairly regularly over the last few months, and they've been escalating. So it's really good to um, have, I guess, some perspective from a legal support service that is activist-focused. So I was wondering, um, you know, if you can talk to us about the escalation of police actions, including the use of capsicum spray and rubber bullets um, at these uh, anti-lockdown protests, and also deploying the Bearcat, uh, which has a long-range acoustic device mounted on the top as well. Um, That's the weird sort of tank-like vehicle that people have been seeing going around the city. So can you take us through some of Mal's main concerns with the use of these tactics and equipment when it comes to people's safety, um, and also concerns about freedom of expression, not saying necessarily that we agree with anti-lockdown protesters, but more in a general sense. Definitely. Mal's has been clear in a recent statement of concern from last month's anti-lockdown protests that police using these projectile weapons, particularly rubber bullets, is something we're really concerned about. We've seen those pepper ball firearms which shoot capsicum rounds, a bit like tear gas being used, and we've seen police use baton round launchers which shoot rubber or plastic bullets. And then just yesterday, we've seen those pump-action long arms, which we're still working on understanding. We're not quite sure what those are. 
as far as we can tell, they shoot foam rounds similar to the other launches. But it is notable that this is the first time we've really seen them at protests. These projectile weapons are incredibly dangerous. They can blind, they can maim, and they can leave permanent injuries. We've seen countless examples of this happening overseas, especially with the um, the Yellow Vest protest in France, where mm-hmm. a Lancet study found 43 eye injuries stemming from these rubber bullets. Yeah. And sporadic examples of protesters in the last few days showing what looked like injuries from rubber bullets. We're still working to verify that. And Miles has called out this behavior. These pepper balls and rubber bullets are inappropriate for public order policing and crowd control. We've also uh, we've tracked the increasing use of coercive and excessive crowd control tactics by the police over several years. And we condemn how these harmful weapons are being used and the ever-increasing arsenal Victoria Police has at their disposal. As you noted, they brought out their Bearcat yesterday, which is essentially a beefed-up mix between a four-wheel drive and a tank. Mm-hmm. We believe this kind of militarized equipment should only be reserved for extremely dangerous situations, which is what they were saying that their cat was for as well when they bought it, not as a general crowd control measure. In terms of uh, freedom of expression, we believe, without condoning the recent protests, that protests can be compatible with public health in some circumstances, such as those actions by the uh, Victorian Refugee Action Collective. However, when you have these huge show of forces, like we've been seeing near the CSMEU office, essentially sending the message that protesters should not come because you'll be met with violence. And what that does is it intimidates people from exercising a right to protest. Yes, we think these anti-lockdown protests are hugely inappropriate and misguided, but what we want to avoid is these huge show of forces and heavily militarized weapons and officers becoming normalized. We hope that future actions by progressive groups won't be curtailed in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, there's so much to unpack in what you said, you know, when it comes to uh, what Victoria Police, but also, you know, other police forces around the country say when they do acquire this equipment, um, you know, what it's going to be used for, uh, this framing of less than lethal um, weaponry, um, even though we know that if, you know, if these these rubber bullets hit the right place, they can cause some serious damage. Um, and of course, as you've said, once these once these weapons are out of the bag, we know they're pretty hard to put back in. Um, and so, yeah, I was wondering if maybe you could kind of unpack some of those concerns about expanded police powers that have been given to police during the 2020 COVID protocols um, and into this year and their impacts for freedom of assembly. Um, and maybe whether there's been any greater discretionary powers granted to Victoria Police over these recent demonstrations and the implications for protests in the future. Because I know even as as, um, as late as yesterday, there was also the announcement of a, of a no-fly zone for journalists over the area um, with, you know, exemptions having to be granted. Yeah. So in terms of the law, there, as far as we can tell, there shouldn't be any increased discretional use of force just because of COVID. As always, the police don't have unrestrained power to use their weapons, even less than lethal weapons, or any other force on protesters. Under the um, Victorian Charter of Human Rights and in the Crimes Act and the Common Law, police actions need to be, always need to be reasonable, necessary, and proportionate to the threat faced. And with this, using, drawing, or threat, even just threatening the use of their weapons is considered the use of force that may 
need to be accountable for. And I think what was interesting yesterday in that in that press conference in the morning was how the police were starting to use the words protest, riot, and mob interchangeably. Mm. It starts to transition the, the police powers away from, you know, emergency health orders towards the Unlawful Assembly Act, which governs, governs more serious events like riots. It's still a developing situation, and we're kind of looking at how it might affect the Victoria Police response. What I can say is that we've analysed in the past how characterising a protest as violent or non-violent early on, or before it even starts, has quite a significant impact on the police response. There's a video up on our website of the um, the public order response team doing their training where the uh, the fake protests were violent and they were throwing stuff at the officers. And obviously this creates... the If the truth... If the police are training with violent protesters, then they're going to bring out more serious levels of force against these potential protesters. And, um, yeah, it's been interesting. There's been a shift towards using port, the public order response team, in the last few days very much mm. as the front line of the protest. Uh, we would suggest, as we said earlier, that this level of intimidation is bad because it tries to dissuade people from protesting by threatening them. Um it's probably a reaction to, you know, the anti-lockdown protests on Saturday where it appeared the general duty officers were outnumbered and a few got injured. But as John Sylvester noted in the age, police management are really using port as the front line mm. in protests going forward, where in the past it was very much general police officers at the front and port at the back in case of emergency, which seems to be ushering in a new era of public order um, policing. And what we're worried about is what precedent that sets, especially for, you know, big rallies like the Invasion Day rally next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, we're, we're coming up to um, having to lead into closing up, but I did want to ask one more question um, just about this, which is uh, that I've seen that journalists have also been caught in police uh, use of force during these um Protests, and I understand the age is lodging a formal complaint about a photographer being capsicum sprayed. So we know that marshals, legal observers, and medics haven't really been a feature of these demonstrations, the anti-lockdown demonstrations. Um, but I was wondering if you could give us some brief thoughts about the impact impacts of these categories as well as uh, media personnel. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been a really different environment. It looks like for the journalists. Obviously, Paul Dowsley from Channel Seven was um, attacked by the protesters times on Tuesday, which is really disappointing to see, because we do a lot of work on educating activists about their civil and political rights, and when you start to attack journalists like that, what it does is it sways public opinion in favour of the police, and then the police can use more and more powers and get away with it. And like you were saying earlier, that thing about no flies and over the CBD, um, I believe they've scaled it back now, so there'll be a one-hour delay on the footage coming from the news helicopters. Mm-hmm. Um, Miles is very concerned about this as it greatly reduces the media coverage of these protests and equally the police response to them. Even with a one-hour delay, it kind of defeats the purpose of the live stream if it's not live anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, we can... There's so much more to unpack here, and we'd love to have you on again, but we will have to wrap up now. So where can people find out more information about Mal's work? Yeah, you can find us at melbourneactivistlegal.org.au or Activist Legal on Twitter. And just quickly, um, 
We're hosting an event next Tuesday, the 28th, on the Identify and Disrupt Act. We'll have some friends from Digital Rights Watch and the Oxfam Network, and tickets are free and available on our website. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Really encourage people to learn more about that, and Mal's has an excellent write-up of that as well. Thank you so much, Alec. Thanks for having us on. And that was Alec from Melbourne Activist Legal Support, or MALS, who joined us to discuss concerns about the policing of anti-lockdown protests, which have escalated over the past week in Melbourne. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and that's about all we've got time for today. Yeah, we can. Ha- we have time for a very quick rundown. So um, first up, we heard a recording of Associate Professor Bradley Mogridge, a Camilleroy water scientist, closing the gap between Western science and traditional science, and he was speaking about how Indigenous knowledge is still sidelined in water management and why this needs to change, and that was a recording from the Earth Matters program. And after that, we heard from Dr. Chris Limo, who's an infectious disease and general physician at Monash Health, based in southeast Melbourne, who works at a public hospital and the Refugee Health Service in Dandenong, and is the president of the Victorian African Health Action Network, and joined us to discuss the impact of Victoria's roadmap to COVID normal on healthcare workers, the healthcare system, and marginalised communities. Yeah, and then we were really lucky to be joined by the Marindas, the collective force of Belladon Wajak and Noongar woman Christelle Kickett and Candice LeRae of Jawan and Thursday Island Heritage and their new single Boomerang, which you heard on the program, is the second to be lifted from their forthcoming EP, which will be out on September 27th. And finally, we're joined by Alec from Melbourne Activist Legal Support, or MALS, who discussed concerns about the policing of anti-lockdown protests. And MALS is a group of volunteers supporting activists to defend their own civil and political rights. And that is all we have time for this morning. Thank you again for joining us on Thursday Morning Breakfast. Catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.